Should old acquaintance be forgot and never brought to mind? Should old acquaintance be forgot? Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And if you want to reach out to me, please shoot me an email. You can do that at cagerredux at gmail.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. All right, today is... December 7th, 2022, and this episode's going to be much different from my usual episodes. Today I want to talk about someone who was very influential in the athletes' rights movement that very few people have heard of, and I want to give him his due in this episode because he passed away day before yesterday, and I'm talking about Huck DeVenzio. Huck is Dick DeVenzio's older brother, and I've spoken quite a bit about Dick in this podcast, and I've also written about him in my blog. And he was really a pioneer in athletes' rights going back to the mid-1980s. I'm going to talk a little bit more about Dick here in a minute. But he passed away in 2001 from cancer, and I had a longstanding relationship and friendship with Dick that really goes back to the 1970s. And along the way, I got to meet Huck. And Huck was a really interesting guy, and he was just brilliant. The guy had a, an amazing mind, and he had the capacity to just cut through the BS on any issue and get right to the heart of, ma- of the matter and lay it on the table there in a very understated, soft, thoughtful way. But I think that in talking about Dick's legacy, you also have to talk about Huck. Huck was very influential in Dick's thinking about these issues and really helped Dick focus his advocacy in a way that would maximize his message and his productivity. Huck had a background in advertising and marketing And he had a very sophisticated understanding and approach to how you manage your message and how you put it out there in a way that increases the likelihood that people will pay attention to it. And in the 1980s, if you were talking about college sports and critiquing it and making the case that athletes were being exploited, that they should receive more than they were getting from the expanding marketplace and that athletes may have to resort to self-help, including the possibility of unionization. When you're making that case in the 1980s, boy, that was an unfriendly message. It was really Dick DiVenzio against the world, and I think he kind of liked it that way. I believe he thought that was a fair fight. But Dick got enormous pushback, and he was demonized. And in some stakeholder beneficiaries tried to portray him as un-American. And he was against everything that made this country great. And he would fight back at that and point out that actually the business model of big-time college sports back then, as it is today, is based on a value system that's fundamentally hostile to basic American values and liberties. 
but Dick didn't have a lot of support. And it was very, very important for him to have someone like Huck who could help him frame his issues, hone his message, and respond effectively to the criticism. And the criticism was relentless. And today it's much different. I've described the burgeoning athletes' rights community as well-intentioned, but very poorly organized. We have an alphabet soup of advocacy groups, and it's not clear to me that they have a coordinated strategy. And so you've seen some good stuff come out of the new athletes' rights movement, but it stands in stark contrast to the extraordinarily organized and sophisticated campaign of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And they have the best public relations people and lobbyists and strategists and lawyers on the planet, helping them coordinate their message. So first, I want to talk about Huck, just to lay the context for why I'm doing this episode and why I think his contributions are so important. And then I'm going to go through some of Dick's work and talk about it in the context of his legacy and also Huck's relationship to that work. I guess I would characterize my relationship with Huck as episodic. As I mentioned earlier, I got to know him back in the 1970s and then into the 1980s as Dick was really ramping up his advocacy and working on a book that Huck was really influential in in shaping. I had some conversations with Huck. I did some work for Dick on that book as well. And then over the years, I would have occasion to see Huck and we would talk and we'd talk about all kinds of things. He had a really broad range of interests, including waterfalls. He loved waterfalls. He traveled all over the world to photograph waterfalls. And I saw a couple of his slide presentations and it's, it was just amazing, really. And I just loved Huck's personality because he was so low key, but man, he didn't miss a trick. And he always had a really interesting and unique take on whatever we were talking about. And he was just one of those people in my life that I always looked forward to seeing. And uh, I saw Huck a few times after Dick passed away in the early 2000s. And we had some good conversations and we would talk about athletes' rights. And not once in any of my conversations with Huck about athletes' rights Did he ever suggest in the slightest way that he was responsible for the success that Dick had and the name that he developed and the quality of his advocacy? The word humility is tossed around quite a bit, and I found that people who talk about their own humility probably don't have a whole lot of it. But Huck was truly humble. It was his nature to be humble. There was simply no ego in the way that Huck looked at his life's work and his uh, relationships, and in particular, in this context, his uh, work with Dick on athletes' rights. And he was just one of those people, by his very nature, who looked at issues and people and and events through the lens of how they impacted others. He, He was always looking outside of himself. And when it came to Dick's advocacy on athletes' rights, Huck was always looking out for Dick's best interest. There wasn't a hint of a suggestion that Huck had any skin in the game except to help his brother get his message out because it was so important to Dick. And one of the interesting things about Huck and the nature of his personality is that he had a contrarian 
streak, but it wasn't cynicism. It was intellectual contrarianism. And he would always look at an issue and think, wait a minute, maybe there's a a different way to look at it. And he would analyze it and he was very thoughtful. And when you asked Huck a question that he didn't have his thoughts fully formed on, he would just pause and he would think. And sometimes those pauses were long and awkward. But when he responded, you were getting something that was gold. And that, I think, is what Dick valued so much. But underlying that contrarian streak was optimism. He used his contrarian instincts and his intellectual firepower to think about things with a view towards a solution that could make whatever the problem was better. And I saw in that true optimism. And Huck always looked to land in a place where the situation or the people he was dealing with were in a better place than they were before. And again, that is just such a rare characteristic. And the combination of all those traits made Huck just a fascinating human being. So after that period in the early 2000s, I really didn't see Huck at all. And I might get an occasional update from Dave, Huck and Dick's younger brother has been a good friend of mine going back to the 1970s or through a friend of a friend, that that kind of thing. But I I learned at some point, this was a number of years ago, that Huck had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and the disease began to progress. And then a, a couple of years ago, he had to go into an assisted living facility in Memphis. And that is just cruel disease, particularly for people with beautiful minds like Huck. So as his body deteriorated, his capacity to use that brilliant mind to interact with the world deteriorated as well. And as I was doing my work in athletes' rights, and I was really starting to think about the athletes' rights movement as a standalone issue, and I had decided that I was going to do an independent look at and perhaps a separate treatment of maybe a book on the athletes' rights movement. And I just find that fascinating. One of the things I've loved about this work and my reconnection with athletes' rights is getting a much better understanding of the history of college sports. And I think that athletes' rights advocacy is an important piece of that now. I really want to isolate that and look at it from a historical standpoint and the evolution of it. But as I was bookmarking material on the history of athletes' rights, stuff that I would want to take another look at and maybe include in a book or a series of articles, however I wind up treating it. Huck came to my mind again and again and again. When I started doing research in 2018 to gear up for my blog and then my podcast, I read everything I could get my hands and eyes on. But I would occasionally run across a reference to Dick, and it wasn't just in mainstream news articles or magazines. But it was in books, a number of books. I'm going to talk about a few of those here in a little bit. And also in academic writings. I spent a lot of time reading law review articles and economics journals and academic writings that come out of a sports discipline. And Dick would occasionally be mentioned. But what was interesting to me is that the treatment of his work was usually very cursory. It was bump and run. There was an acknowledgement that he was a pioneer in athletes' rights. But when you look at the articles that mentioned him over time, you really begin to see his influence fading. His name came up quite a bit in 2014 when the Northwestern football team was trying to unionize because that's one of the things that Dick was trying to do in the 1980s to get football players to really use self-help 
to withhold their labor to get their issues on the table. And this Northwestern unionization attempt was very much in that model, and Dick's name came up then. But more recent literature, particularly from the beginning of this perfect storm in 2019, when the NCAA and Power Five went offense to eliminate the athletes' rights movement through protective federal legislation, Dick's name doesn't come up that often. And uh, a few of the more recent mentions of his work really, I think, understated his contributions. And that just started to piss me off a little bit. But I thought I need to try to marshal as much information as I can to do Dick's legacy justice. It occurred to me that I'd better get in touch with Huck. He is just a wealth of information. He is a human library. And he had given some of his materials that he, he had collected over the years to some people that I knew. And so I was able to get some of that stuff. And his long-term friend and partner, Brenda Heidel, who's just a wonderful human being who's been at his side through all of this. She sent me some material and I went through it and it was really informative. And I have some old video materials that I'm, I'm going to be using at some point in the podcast that I think really capture how little some of these fundamental issues have changed since the 1980s. And some of the questions that Dick would get in these interviews were really interesting. And, and his responses were just spot on. And I think that those questions could be asked today and that Dick's response will be just as relevant today as it was in the 1980s. But I really felt like I needed to talk to Huck because I had been told by some common friends that Huck wasn't doing that well and that he was on the clock. So I had been thinking about a, a trip to Memphis. My wife and I were planning on going there in June this year, 2022. And I really wanted to visit the Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Hotel. And I had always wanted to go to Memphis just for no particular reason, the music and the vibe and all that stuff. So I reached out to Huck through Brenda and sent him an email just telling him what I had been doing in athletes' rights and that I really wanted to try to talk to him and go through some material with him. And he was willing to spend some time with me. And Brenda was just phenomenal in helping to facilitate that. And uh, so was Huck's brother, Dave. And I spoke with Dave a couple of times before I went to Memphis and he was very helpful in explaining to me Huck's situation and how best to communicate with him. But I went to Memphis in early June, and then I spent the better part of an afternoon, a Sunday afternoon, with Huck. And again, his mind was as sharp as it ever was, but he had some difficulty communicating, and so Brenda was helping to facilitate that. And I had organized my material with a view towards getting a very simple, direct answers. And so I, I went there, and we just had an, an amazing visit. And I had a briefcase full of materials, articles, and a couple of books, and some notes that I had made. And I went through methodically with Huck to get some information that I wanted. And I told him my honest thinking on where athletes' rights was, what the evolution of athletes' rights was, and how I saw Dick's legacy. And he had some really interesting things to say about his thinking on that as well. And he had reached out to some people who got into the athletes' rights space right after Dick died and had some interesting communications there. One of the things that I 
said to Huck, and I was explaining why I had gotten back into athletes' rights, and I really never intended to be in it this long. I, I had put together my bucket list of some research and writing projects I wanted to get done, and I started with athletes' rights because I had background in it, but told Huck that really was an agnostic on Dick's thinking. When I was working with him in the mid-1980s, I'd graduated from Duke in 1984, and I've said this before, but Dick was a basketball player at Duke. He was one of the most highly recruited point guards in the country in the mid-60s. He came to Duke in 1967, graduated in 71 as an academic All-American, and I had gone to his camps as a kid. He started some camps locally in Raleigh, and over the years, we became very close, and I developed into a pretty good basketball player. And then I wound up playing at Duke as well. And I finished in 1984, but I took a year off before I went to law school. And that was the year that Dick was really formulating his thoughts on athletes' rights and was writing his 1985 book, Rip Off You, the Annual Theft and Exploitation of Major College Revenue Producing Student Athletes. And Huck was very instrumental. And I'd talked to him back then in the 80s, but I didn't really have fully formed thoughts on athletes' rights. And Dick was engaged with it. And he was a crusader and he got all fired up. He was the opposite of Huck personality-wise when it came to externalizing his emotions. And we had some lively discussions <laughs> where I would take the devil's advocate. But I told Dick this, you know, back in the 1980s, I sure as hell wasn't being exploited. I went from a walk-on to a full scholarship player. When I got that full scholarship, I thought I had won the lottery, but I was in a much different position. And I've talked about that quite a bit. And I guess I had always assumed that Huck always felt about these athletes' rights issues the same way that Dick did. And it turns out that wasn't true at all. And I didn't learn that until I met with him in June. And and he said, look, it wasn't like that at all. In fact, not just uh, Huck, but his father, Chuck, who was a Hall of Fame basketball coach in Pittsburgh. They grew up in Pittsburgh. But Coach Devenzio and Huck, they really didn't buy all the athletes' rights stuff. And I think they both were to different degrees concerned about Dick's advocacy. It's like, if you really thought about what you're saying here and how this is going to be received, because I'm not sure I see it that way. You think that a Joe Blow fan or Joe Blow athletics administrator or NCAA executive is going to see it that way. And what Huck described to me was really this process where he came to believe, and he came to believe in large part because of the logic of Dick's arguments and the fact that he framed them around American values in the face of criticism that was accusing him of actually promoting un-American values. He was speaking a different language. He was speaking a language that nobody else was speaking in the 1980s. And it was very difficult to challenge the logic of what he had to say. And I think Huck came to believe, just as I did, that this business model is dysfunctional, it's unfair, it is inconsistent with basic American principles of economic freedom and free markets and free and fair competition and all of the things that make this country great. And you have to really absorb that message and you have to be open to thinking about college sports in a different way, to go through that process of coming to believe. And Dick and I, I can't tell you how many midnight conversations we had about athletes' rights, and sometimes it got a little bit chippy. But over time, I came to believe that Dick was absolutely right. And I think that has informed 
my advocacy and it informed Huck's advocacy. Because when you come from a starting point that is consistent with kind of the mainstream thinking on college sports, you understand the arguments that are made. You understand how easily they are accepted in normal American culture and how difficult it is to speak against them and that you really have to bring your A game if you're going to have just a chance at planting that seed of doubt that may lead people to think about it a little bit differently and maybe take in some of the mainstream narratives in a different way. And that's part of the process. And I think Huck felt that way about his experience as a college athlete. He played basketball at Cornell in the 1960s. And I don't think he viewed that experience as uh, one that was part of an exploitative model. And that's in the Ivy League model. It's much different. But I, I think we both came away from our different basketball experiences not really uh, believing that we were part of an exploitative system. And, and then we both came around in, in different ways over the years. But the most important takeaway from that meeting for me was that Huck really wanted Dick's legacy to be recognized in an honest way and acknowledged in an honest way. I told him that I was going to do my part to help make that happen through my advocacy and then this, this standalone work on the history of athletes' rights. But I took a number of articles and book excerpts that discussed the Dick, and I read those to Huck just to give him a sense of kind of what was out in the literature with respect to Dick's work. And I think it really energized him. And what I want to do now is just go through a quick list of the things that Dick was doing and how he got his message out with Huck's help. I think Huck would want me to talk about this. He, doesn't, he wouldn't want me to talk about his contributions. It's just not the kind of guy he is. But he would want me to talk about the work that Dick did and how important it was. And one of the documents that I got in reaching out to Huck and some other people who had some of Dick's old material is a list of some of the milestones in Dick's advocacy. And this is in Dick's handwriting. It has a very distinctive, very clear, precise handwriting, and I recognized it right away. And the first entry on this list is 1985, and that was when Rip Off You was published. And it is a critique of big-time college sports. I go back to Dick's book again and again just to see how little has changed on some of these fundamental issues. Again, I'm going to get into the details of that when I talk about Dick more specifically, and then when I talk about this work on the history of athletes' rights. Then in 1986, Dick tried to do something. They got a fair amount of press coverage at the time, and it's referred to occasionally now when talks about self-help and unionization come up. But in 1986, Dick tried to get the Nebraska and Oklahoma football players to make some kind of a symbolic gesture of solidarity on athletes' rights before a really important game. And in 86, heading into the end of the regular season, Oklahoma was ranked number three in the country. Nebraska was ranked number five. Oklahoma had Brian Bosworth, the Boz, and Spencer Tillman. And those were the players that Dick was really talking to. And I remember having conversations with Dick about his conversations with both of those gentlemen leading up to this game. And 
The game was played on November 22nd, 1986, and it ranks among the top Nebraska-Oklahoma games of all time. Oklahoma won 20-17. to 17. But Dick wanted athletes to control their own destiny, and he wanted the players to delay the game by 30 minutes, and that was going to be a statement that would have required people to pay attention and at least acknowledge that the athletes were thinking about their rights in a different way and that they were willing to take action to assert them. And as game time approached, I think there were some nervousness among some of the key players. And at some point I may get into Dick's thoughts on that, you know, as he was talking to me during that period. But basically the players, instead of delaying the game, players from both teams met at midfield before the game and they kneeled and they prayed as a gesture of athletes' rights solidarity. And that act really didn't get a whole lot of attention. It wasn't something, obviously, that the NCAA or the universities or the networks wanted to emphasize. They didn't want to give these athletes a, a platform to, to tell their story and to try to get their message on the table. Then in 1988, Dick tried to place an ad in the Ohio State football game program that was an athlete's rights statement. He was going to put some advocacy material in that football program and Ohio State said no. And so he had some fun with that. And then in 89, he had a project called Target Rose Bowl. And he was trying to delay the Rose Bowl and he sent out some information and some material to try to get support for that. Both of those efforts, the Nebraska-Oklahoma game and the Target Rose Bowl campaign, just point out how difficult it is to get athletes to speak truth to power because they are powerless in a system where they really have no voice and they have no control. That's played out o over time. The, you had the Northwestern unionization attempt and that went pretty far. It got to a decision in the administrative process, but the university tried to get to these athletes and there became a, a really kind of a rift between groups of athletes, and there was a racial component to that. The athletes are under enormous pressure to toe the party line, and that is just as true today as it was in 1986 and 1989. And then I think I mentioned in a recent episode the efforts of the College Football Players Association, and they were trying to get some inroads with the Penn State football team to have them use self-help to try to get some important issues on the table in terms of their treatment and the benefits that they got and that kind of thing. And that was running through the Penn State quarterback, Sean Clifford, and the head of the CFBPA, Jason Stahl, thought that he had a working relationship with Clifford. And then the powers that be got in Clifford's ear. Jason just got stiff-armed by Penn State and also by the Big Ten. And Again, it just speaks to how difficult it is to ask athletes to engage in self-help when they are really having to fight some of the most powerful institutional forces in America. And I know from my own experience as an athlete in a profit sport, a big-time college basketball, that asking athletes to act independent of the authority structure at the institutional conference and national level is just a huge ask. And I, I wouldn't make that ask lightly. 
And I have some thoughts on that. I'll be sharing in upcoming episodes about some things that athletes can do in the nature of self-help that shouldn't be an immediate existential threat to the interests of, of the institution. And it's based on transparency and accountability, but I'll debut that here in the near future. But then in 1993, Dick and, and Huck was influential in this. I think that this may have been Huck's idea, actually. One of the things that Dick was asking for and kind of his list of player rights and benefits was a trust fund where some money would be put into player-specific accounts. And then if the players graduated, they could tap into those trust funds. Dick was on the front edge of that. That theory has been carried forward. And in fact, it was really the kind of the framework for the O'Bannon remedy at the district court level. Judge Wilkin, as a name, image, and likeness compensation in that case, she allowed the full cost of attendance scholarship, but she also allowed a trust fund set up for each player that they could get $5,000 a year. And then when they graduated, they could have access to that money. And that was deemed name, image, and likeness compensation. And then you've had some other people talk about trust funds, and that's been discussed in connection with some of these revenue sharing bills, both at the state and federal level. But when Dick suge suggested that in the 1980s, all of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries went to hair on fire. It's not a concept that they can just outright reject because it has merit and it's tied to educational outcomes, but they didn't want any part of athletes actually getting a piece of the revenue that they generated. So there was all kinds of pushback to that concept. And in response to that, Dick and Huck set up trust funds for two ACC basketball players, one for Joey Beard, who played at Duke, and then another for Rodney Rogers, who played at Wake Forest. And at about the same time, in a related vein, they sent post-dated checks to a number of football players so that once they graduated, they'd be able to cash those checks. And both of those actions, the creation of the trust fund and then the post-dated checks, violated NCAA hematurism rules. So it caused all kinds of problems for the institution and everybody was pissed off at Dick. But it did get some attention, but that was more than a publicity stunt because I think that for people who were paying attention, they looked at this trust fund option as something that was really a good idea worth exploring. And the way that the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries responded to that with kind of self-righteous, sanctimonious condescension and derision, it just showed that they weren't willing to think outside the box. And you're back to the same old problem with the same people who created this monster, this big-time college sports monster, sitting in decision-making chairs when it's time to talk about reform. And then in 1994, Dick sent out a video cassette urging players to take action. And then I think this was also Huck's idea. They hired an airplane that had a banner carrying an advertising message on behalf of a Georgia football player named Patrick Pass. And they had the plane flying over Sanford Stadium. And I talked to Huck about that one. And he said he doesn't even think anybody saw the plane. So and then in 1997, he was behind some job offers that were made to athletes for post-graduation. Again, that would have been impermissible under NCAA rules. I think that the NCAA may have actually relented on that. But throughout this period, Dick also did something else that was very important. He started an organization for athletes known as the Revenue Producing Major College Players Association. And he sent out newsletters 
and he sent out press releases, and he communicated directly with athletes. He really got into the fray and tried to get athletes involved at the grassroots level, and that is also a challenge, not just because of the institutional pushback, but because these athletes, particularly in football, men's basketball, now it's true in all sports, they're working 50 hours a week, and their lives are micromanaged by the teams and the athletics departments. They just don't have much time to take in these issues. And that's a, a big challenge right now for athletes' rights advocates, trying to penetrate their messaging to the athletes. But that organization was really the predicate in Dick's mind for a potential union. And that issue got a good deal of coverage because it was viewed as radical. You know, this notion, and it's still radical. And that goes back to my point that so much of what Dick was talking about in the 1980s and that Huck was helping him with was viewed as radical in the 1980s. That same concept is viewed as equally radical. And the fact that we haven't moved the needle on that single issue in 40 years is, uh, I think it just speaks to the power of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries. And of course, underneath that unionization issue is the no employee line, that line in the sand that the NCAA and Power Five drew in the 1950s in a cynical ploy to avoid workers' compensation liability. And they are still defending that line with everything they've got. And that's true today. And right now, I want to talk a little bit about just how big Dick's megaphone became, how prominent he was as an athlete's rights advocate in the 1980s and 1990s. It wasn't until Dick started getting people in the media interested in his message that all of a sudden the NCAA took him seriously. And I think they viewed him as a threat, at least at the messaging level. And they tried to portray him as a crackpot and a publicity hound and all this stuff. But that was a smokescreen for having to look honestly at his message and the substance of his message. But in the 1980s, there were a couple of reporters at national newspapers that really gave Dick a platform to, to get his message out there. And one is Dave Kindred, who wrote for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I've gotten some of his materials from archives he left at his undergraduate university. And I, I probably need to reach out to him too. I would love to pick his brain. But he covered Dick's ideas fairly and he paid attention and he would write about those issues periodically. And that's the kind of messaging that has people thinking. And of course, you're spreading the idea. And then there was a, another reporter at a big time newspaper named Frank Dolson. He wrote for the Philadelphia Inquirer, who really was focusing on the unionization issue. And he really believed that Dick had a point looking at it purely from a labor relations standpoint and an employee rights standpoint. And that was an important piece of advocacy. You had Rick T. Lander, who wrote for the Chicago Tribune and then for Sports Illustrated, who also talked about Dick's ideas. And he didn't just discard them as the message of some crackpot. He said, these are real issues and we need to pay attention. So the advocacy of those three writers at or about the same time gave Dick some credibility and gave his ideas legitimacy. 
And he had articles in Sports Illustrated and in Newsweek and all kinds of regional magazines and newspapers. He appeared on numerous national TV shows like the McNeil Laird News Hour. And McNeil Laird doesn't have crackpots on their news show. Neither does 60 Minutes. Dick did an appearance on 60 Minutes. He was on the Roy Firestone show. And then this is really interesting. I actually have video of this. I'm going to be using it at some point. But Dick did an appearance on a show called Crossfire that was a major network. I can't remember which one. But Pat Buchanan was one of the hosts. I can't remember the name of the other guy, just uh, slipping my mind. But Buchanan represented the conservative side. And then this other guy represented the liberal side. And they would have a guest on. And then they both would ask questions. So Dick appeared on that show and Pat Buchanan, Mr. Conservative, was basically trying to make the case that Dick's advocacy was was un-American. And Dick came back with the observation that I've made of the irony of people who claim to be conservative, justifying compensation limits that are fundamentally inconsistent with American values. But that was fun to watch. And then, of course, over the years, Dick has been mentioned in some books that are mainstream books, like Walter Byers, for example, the former president of the NCAA. And I've talked so much about Byers because he's so important in the history of the NCAA. He was the first NCAA CEO. He got that job in 1951 and served until 1987. And the basic structure of the modern NCAA was built in his image. He's the architect of the modern NCAA. But he wrote a book in 1995 on sportsmanlike conduct that, again, I've talked quite a bit about. It's a must-read. That's one of those books that if you're serious about understanding these issues and the history of big-time college sports and its regulation and then athletes' rights, unsportsmanlike conduct is at the top of the list of required reading. But in, in that book, Byers talks about Dick, and Byers was the NCAA president when Dick's advocacy was just taking off, and he became a fly in the NCAA's ointment. And Byers actually talks favorably about Dick and his advocacy and his bravery, because what he did was brave in the 1980s. When in that book, Byers turned on most central tenets of the NCAA business model. He said amateurism was camouflaged for monopoly practice. He said the full athletic scholarship was outright pay for play. And the subtitle of that book is Exploiting College Athletes. He talked about the business model after he left it behind through the lens of exploitation. And he makes some great points. When Walter Byers turned on this thing that he had created, he was essentially persona non grata at the NCAA. There's an award named after him, but you don't hear many people in the NCAA talking about Walter Byers. And this is just an example. There are a number of books, but these are the ones that just came to mind. And I took both of these books with me to Memphis to show Huck some of the things that I had identified. But in I think it was 2018, Joe Nocera, former New York Times columnist, maybe he's still with them, I'm not sure, he's a well-known columnist, and Ben Strauss co-authored a book called Indentured, and they talk really about the O'Bannon case. They had a front row seat to O'Bannon, and they, and they talk about it in a really engaging way. In that book, they were talking about Ramogi Huma with the National College Players Association, who was trying to get the athletes unionized at Northwestern in in 2014. And they point out correctly that that was not the first effort to try to unionize college athletes. And they talk about Dick. I really, I like the way they talked about him. I think they could have done a little bit more with that to, to put Dick's work a little more solidly in an accurate historical context. But they at least identified him and acknowledged him and the fact that he was a trailblazer on these issues at a time when 
it was heresy to talk about athletes organizing to protect their interests. So and I'm just scratching the surface here. I'm just identifying the, the low-hanging fruit, and I'll, I'll treat these issues in much more detail later on. But what I think is important to understand, and what I think Huck wants people who are interested in athletes' rights to understand, is that Dick was a, a true pioneer, and he was an advocate when being an advocate was risky. It wasn't something that you could do and then put on your resume. It was hazardous work in the 1980s. And one of the things I wanted to communicate to Huck when I took this material that had referenced Dick o over the years is that in, in this new age of information and the internet and how much information there is and how freely it f flows and how people get lost and important pieces of history just disappear and we have massive gaps in the tape. And it's very difficult to go back and try to fill in those gaps. And I understand the, the challenge of that. But what I wanted Huck to understand is that despite those limitations, Dick's work has become part of the consciousness of athletes' rights, even for people who don't even know who he is. Like one of my litmus tests when I talk to people in the athletes' rights movement is, do you know who Dick DeVenzio is? And probably seven times out of 10, the person says, no. And then I'll give a brief bio on Dick and they're like, oh, okay, that's nice. And then they're, they're on to the next thing. And when I hear that and the tone in which it's dismissed, I think it's even more important that I do what I can to put Dick's legacy in its proper place. And I guess I should also say that for the three out of 10 who have heard of Dick, I don't think it's coincidental, and this is a subjective judgment, but I don't think it's coincidental that their understanding of the issues is much better than the seven out of 10 who haven't heard about Dick and aren't familiar with his advocacy. And if you've done meaningful research on athletes' rights, you should know. And if you are paying close attention to how the narratives in athletes' rights have evolved, one way or another, you're going to come back to some of Dick's work in the 1980s and 1990s. And I have just loved the conversations I've had with people who are familiar with his work and have been influenced by his work. There's some heavy hitters in the athletes' rights community who I have just through a coincidence and networking, and that's not my strength, I'm not a networker, but I've met some really interesting people who have been influenced by Dick and look at him as an important person in the athletes' rights movement who has influenced their thinking and their work. But my hope is that at some point, seven out of 10 people will have heard about Dick DiVenzio and only three out of 10 haven't. That's a challenge given the way that information moves and narratives get cemented in and then People occupy the athlete's rights space and have this special standing. And I think that you have to acknowledge that you're standing on the shoulders of giants that came before you. So if you're familiar with the podcast and you've been following me, you probably had a sense from the opening music that this was not going to be a normal episode. I ditched my stock intro and opened with a song that through sheer serendipity, I had put into my Spotify playlist the day before I learned that Huck had passed away. And it's a collection of Scottish folk songs, and it's a version of Old Lang Syne. We pronounce it Old Ang Syne in America, but uh, it's Old Lang Syne, three separate words. And the last word is an S, not a Z. 
in proper Scottish form. I found that song just beautiful, and, and it has a, a haunting quality to it, but a beautiful haunting quality. And we sing that song on New Year's Eve, and that title means looking back over the years and reflecting back over the years. I just thought that was really in the mood of how I landed when I learned from Huck's brother Dave that he had passed away. And it just captures this sense of loss. And I felt a sense of loss, but it's also a song of hope, I think, encouraging people to remember. And so this old Lang sign is for me to remember Huck. And I just want to close this episode out with something that Dick wrote in his 1985 book. But at the very end of the book, he has a section called Special People, Special Thanks. And he says, there are some special people who have been particularly helpful in making this book possible. First, my brother Huck, a student athlete at Cornell University in the late 60s. He has spent years as an advertising executive. This year, he interrupted a world tour to help edit this manuscript. If he says something is wrong, it's wrong. When he said one section was unclear to him, I removed it entirely. Huck is one of those rare people who knows what he is talking about, but never tries to pretend he knows something he doesn't. His instincts are infallible. And with that, I'm going to close this episode. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back on the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Be forgot and never brought to mind Should all the acquaintance be forgot And days of old land sign For old land sign, dear For 